I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we will be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. You will find it in your pew Bible on page 1,789. 1,789. Before we look at the word of God this morning, let us... I ask that we bow our heads and our hearts and ask that the Lord would bless this word to us. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we come before you asking for you to illumine our hearts, engage our minds, that your word that we hear that would be transformative to us. Lord, we ask that you be with your servant. May he speak what is right and true through your grace. And Lord, we ask that you be with your people that they may hear your word, that it may sit with them, and that it may go forth from this place into the world, that you would be glorified, and that your name would be praised. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, starting at verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even, be, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed thus far, the reading of God's word. People of God, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, when you write a letter, I know it's a very long thing, not be lecturing anybody on how to write letters. But there is such a thing as a letter. And I, yes, was one of those last generations that had to take letter writing in high school. Not only typing on a computer, but yes, I had to, in English class, write letters. I had to learn about the salutation. I had to learn about the intro to a letter, the body of a letter, a summary of the letter, conclusion, finally the concluding greeting, and postscripts. And if I was to write business letters, other things, I had to write different forms of letters. I had to be able to address it to whom it may concern. Well, when Paul writes his letter here to the Corinthians, you have seen, if you've read the book of Corinthians, the many, many topics that Paul tries to deal with. He's very, very specific in things that he does. He talks about unity. He talks about all these other things, 
Probably the most famous passage of 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians 13, speaking about love. And yet, as he starts to close the book, as he starts to reach his concluding paragraphs, maybe he's running out of parchment, maybe something else is going on, maybe he's running out of time. So he says, I'm going to summarize. I want to remind you he doesn't remind them of anything else, but he says, I want to remind you of this. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. And so this morning, as we look upon sort of the conclusion of the year, take a look at part of the conclusion of this letter and remind you of the gospel that from this pulpit has been faithfully preached to you. We're going to look at the final reminders We're going to look at what the primacy is of the gospel, and we're going to take a look at the foundation that that gospel rests upon, not the messenger, but the one who first delivered that message. So first, Paul writes here in chapter 15, verse 1, he wants to remind them of the gospel that I preach to you. Paul, we know, went through Corinth a number of times on his missionary journey. He did so with regularity. In fact, he went to Corinth, we know, at least two or three times and preached in the streets. He started in the synagogue and then moved on into the streets. And he writes now to the church. He says, remember the gospel that I preached, the gospel that you received, the gospel that made you Christians. Not through some sort of fancy or because of my eloquence or something like that. No, I want you to remind, or I want to remind you of the gospel that was preached to you. That which you received, and now that which you have taken a firm stance upon. He says, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to it. He says, you've taken your stand upon it. You've realized that this gospel that has been preached is not a gospel that is here or there. It's not a gospel that, well, it's take it or leave it. It's not a gospel that you can slowly kind of conform things into your life. This is a gospel that is, in one word, imperative. It is something that you must stand upon. vain. You see, it's not enough that you can just, okay, it's nice facts. Yes, I'm going to believe this, but you know, I kind of want to hold on to this too. It's not a gospel that is something that can be half-heartedly done. He says, you've received this and you have taken your stamp upon it. Your true faith which we have heard about many times, is that you, is that what you depended upon? It's not something that is merely there. It's not something that you've just assented to that, yes, this is truth. It's something that you have depended your very lives upon. Otherwise, all of your belief has been in vain. In verse 3, he states, For what I remember, Paul was not born into the faith, as many of us were. 
Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you. And I received what I passed on to you, that which is of first importance. In the Greek here, it says, I gave to you that which was first, or that has primacy. That primacy, that first thing, the thing that not only came to me first, but the thing that I gave first, the thing that I preached on the street corners, the thing that I was kicked out of the synagogue for, the things that I was actually trying to speak to you, the things that I wanted to give you a foundation in, it's this, this gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In fact, this little phrase here from verse 3 to the end of verse 5 can actually be seen as a creed or the beginnings of a creed. Now, those of you who are not here, but those of you who were in my class, my catechism class, would know that we are studying phrases, words of the Apostles' Creed. And the question that I asked was, what does creed mean? Now, many of you have been in the church for a long time. You can probably pop up with that word. Ah, yes, credo, I know what it means. Credo, I believe. And what do you believe? We have the Apostles' Creed. We have the Nicene Creed. We have the Athanasian Creed. You see, throughout the centuries, our church has said this, our, this foundation of ours is not something that can just be here or there. But it is something that is concrete. Something that can be and yes, there are certain things that we can only say, no, we know what it is not. But when we say, I believe, there are certain things that you must believe according to the scriptures and to call yourself a Christian. The first thing is that Christ died for our sins. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We read this morning a passage of Micah, who says that the Lord is the one who forgives sins. The Lord is the one who gives compassion to his people, who gives the remnant of Israel hope. I mean, we can easily see throughout the scriptures, Genesis 3, the dichotomy between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Throughout all the history of Israel, how God leads his people, how he protects the remnant so that the line is not broken, so that the stump of Jesse shall produce the sprout. We can read over and over and over again in the works of Daniel, in the works of Isaiah. You can think especially of Isaiah 53 in this Christmas season. Christ died according to the scriptures. The suffering servant was hung on a tree for you and for me. He was buried. He was buried. Now, for many of those in this time, burial was a sign of true death. You didn't bury someone who was alive. 
You didn't put someone in a cave, in a tomb, who was still living. For someone to be hung by the Roman authorities on a cross, for permission to be given, for his body to be taken down, and for him to have all the rituals of burial and then put in a tomb, that was final. You see, we don't have the modern medical understanding of what death is today. We don't have the pulse meter hooked up and we can't see the flat line anymore. Back then, it was, did he stop breathing? Did the blood stop flowing? Was there a finality to his life? You see, back then, someone was considered truly dead when you finally put them in the grave. That's why the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus was such a miracle to people. People had heard of Elijah going into the widow at Temnath and laying on her son, and all of a sudden the son comes alive again. Elisha goes to the widow at Zarephath, and the son is alive again. We see those sorts of stories in the Old Testament. But none of them are buried and in a tomb. Once they're in the tomb, they're not coming back. That was very much in a Jewish mindset. That was very much in a Greek mindset as well. The Greeks had these huge cemeteries, especially outside of They had one called the Necropolis, the city of the dead. Being a major thoroughfare, both for sailors and from land travelers, those going from the Peloponnese, where Sparta and a few other major cities were, up through the land of Greece in order to get there to Athens and eventually on a boat maybe to Ephesus or Turkey, you had to go through Corinth. And Corinth was a rough and tumble place. All kinds of vice were there. And so many people died. And so they erected Huge cemeteries, necropoli, the cities of the dead. Those who went into the tomb did not come back. And yet Christ not only does it to himself, where he should be dead, and yet the stone is rolled away. But when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and they say, roll away the stone, Lazarus come out. He was in the tomb. He shouldn't be alive. He shouldn't be here. But Lazarus died again. What does Paul say as part of the gospel? What does Paul say as part of our creed? That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, and after that to more than 500. You see, there were stories going around. Lazarus had been raised from the dead, but there were people who didn't believe it. Well, yes, Lazarus was very, very sick. We understand that. Maybe he stopped breathing. Maybe there was something where, yes, you thought he was dead, and so you threw him in the tomb. And, well, he really wasn't dead. He was just sick. And so when Jesus said, come out of there, he, you know, regained his health and he came back. After all, it was just Mary and Martha and Jesus and some mourners. 
There were only a few people there. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, are you kidding me? Especially the Sadducees? There's no such thing as an afterlife? What are you talking about? People can't rise from the dead. There's no bodily resurrection. No. You see, when Christ rises from the dead, according to the scriptures, he appears first to those most unlikely. When he rises from the tomb, he appears to Mary, and he appears to Peter, and he appears to the twelve. He appears to Peter, the one who denied him. He appears to the twelve locked inside that room, fearing for the, the Romans to come and get them. They thought it was over. Yes, we know he said these things, but we're going to be seen as just another cult. We're all going to be wiped out. What do we do? And Christ comes in and says, peace be with you. And not only that, but he appears to 500. He appears to a sea of witnesses that cannot be rejected. It's not just one or two. It's not just a little bit here and there. It's not just Mary and Martha and Jesus, friends and family. He appears to 500. A cloud of witnesses so great that it cannot be rejected. He appears to those here and there, those that have been gathered for the ceremony of the killing. And yet... <clears throat> And yet, who does he appear to afterwards? He appears to James, his brother. He appears to everybody else first. And then he appears to family. If you came back, wouldn't your family be the first ones you'd want to see? Your husband, your wife, your kids, your grandchildren? And yet Christ appears to everybody else appears to James. And James, the leader, the one from Jerusalem, the head of the church, the one who should have been the first one he appeared to, he appears to him last. But that's not who he lastly appears to, is it? He ascends into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And yet, what does Paul say? Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, in verse 8, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. It's kind of a weird word, isn't it, that Paul would use, abnormally born. Some scholars early on think that maybe this was referred to as the way that Paul was born. Maybe he was born via C-section. Maybe he was born with great difficulty. Maybe he was a breech birth. Maybe that had to do with something that related to the thorn in his flesh. But that's not the language of the Greek here. The language of the Greek here is very disturbing. The language of the Greek here is the same word that is used for a miscarriage. It's the same word that is used for an aborted child. Paul says, if you're going to appear to somebody 
I am the least likely person to appear to because I am the worthless one. I'm the one who, because of what I've done, should never have been a Christian. I'm the one who do not even deserve to be where I am. I deserve to be dead. I deserve to be not born again. Who knows, maybe not even born. He continues in that. That wonderful word, therefore, or for, starts in verse 9. He explains how he is abnormally born. I'm the least of the apostles and do not even, be, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Don't you people realize who I am? My born-again status should never have happened because I was the one that was putting you to death. You want to know who I am? <coughs> I'm not James, the brother of Jesus. I'm not one of the twelve. I'm not the one who was part of the 500 that was appeared to. I'm not even the one that got to see him ascend into heaven. Other translations try to make sense of this word in a different way. They go, I'm one untimely born. Abnormally is a little bit better, but it's not quite there. He goes, I don't deserve to be where I'm at. You people of Corinth, you people who are part of the church, who think in the pew that you just don't deserve to be here, guess what? Neither do I. If you realize that the grace of God is so great that it can save a sinner even like me, guess what? You're in good company. Christ died according to the scriptures. Christ rose according to the scriptures. Christ appeared to so many that it couldn't be just a best kept secret. No, rather, he appears to me last as one whose birth was untimely, abnormal. Rather, one who does not deserve to be alive. Notice here of the things he doesn't remind them. He doesn't remind them that Christ is the wisdom of God as he did in chapter 1 and 2. He doesn't remind them of the work in the spirit. He doesn't remind them of the conflicts that they were having, of the leadership issues, the practical church matters, the women or the teachings or whatever else. He doesn't talk about spiritual gifts or unity in the body. He doesn't talk about head coverings. He doesn't even talk about... Chapter 13, love. But he says, people of God in Corinth, after you've read all 14 chapters so far of this letter, I want to remind you of the primacy of the gospel. And the primacy of the gospel, it is prime, it is foremost, it is the fourth thing in your mind because of this, not because of who I am, but because of what it's done in me. He says, I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church. 
I was the one who, in this word here, it's the one who is most extremely against the church. I wasn't one of, of the church. I wasn't one of the 12. I wasn't even one of the 500. I was one diametrically opposed to the gospel. I was so on fire against the gospel that I was on my way to Damascus to hunt down men, women, and children and to drag them back to Jerusalem for execution if I could. You see, that is the kind of dog I was. I was the bloodhound out to get you. And yet, what happened on that Damascus road? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, Paul says, don't look to my birth. Don't look to who I am or my standing or my title as an apostle. In verse 10, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Now, we can take this personally. We can see that Paul's life was changed. God. That he's on his Damascus road and all of a sudden things change. And he leaves for a time. He goes off into the desert, into the wilderness. There's about three or four years of Paul's life that we really just don't see. What we think tradition tells us, you can take that with a grain of salt, is that Paul went into the area of Petra, most likely, and was taught and listened and heard that this was the gospel, that this is how you dealt and taught and worked with Christians. Because Paul knew none of that. Paul knew what it meant to be a persecutor or a persecutor of the church. He knew nothing. He had status and title. He was the one that held the coats while Stephen was being stoned. He was a friend of those who were persecutors, of those who murdered Christians. And yet, it's not just that. Yes, Saul becomes Paul. But through Paul, look at the change that the grace of God has wrought. Not just in Tarsus, not just in Damascus, not just in Jerusalem, but in Antioch, in Antioch, Pisidia, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Colossa, in Galatia, in Turkey and in Greece. In Athens, he speaks, and he goes all the way to Rome. And who knows, he might have even made it to Spain. That he wanted to head that way. We read of a life that was used by God, that was changed by the grace of God. 
And that life sparked a wildfire. His grace is not without effect. It works, and it works mightily. To the point where later on the Roman emperor becomes a Christian. That the church spreads throughout all the world. And that even now you and I are here in a country where we can sit and worship our God and hear of the gospel. The grace of God is not without effect. It's not in vain. It works. But he, again, does not point to himself. Although we can see the effect of that grace. He continues to say, I worked harder than all them, but yet it wasn't me. It was the grace of God within me. He says, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. You yourself, sitting in these pews here at Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church in the year 2019, about to hit 2020, you yourself are a product of the work of grace by the preaching of the gospel through Paul. We need to realize that the truth of the gospel, the impact of this grace, shouldn't stop merely with words of the pulpit. We don't need another Paul that needs to ride into the world to spread the gospel. It's been done, but it doesn't mean God isn't going to do it again. But maybe it does start here. Maybe it does start with the word that's been preached. Maybe it starts in 2019. And maybe our first step into 2020 should be in the primacy of the gospel. You see, the grace of God changes all things. In 2020, it should be the primacy of the gospel through the preaching of it in our lives that the grace of God is demonstrated. You see, when Paul speaks here in chapter 15 to the Corinthians, he's giving a foundation for what it leads to. And he uses it as a point to talk about the resurrection of the dead. He says, this foundation of the gospel, the primacy, the first thing that I preach to you, if you hold on to it, there is hope. And that hope, that hope affects the rest of your life. And it affects the life to come. As we step from this year into the next, as we step from this Sunday into the next day of our lives, may we step with the primacy of the gospel. 
May you pass on the first thing that is preached from here, from this pulpit that started many years before I was here, started many years before Pastor Carey was here, and that you so wonderfully remind us every time I step to this pulpit that, sir, we would see Jesus. And so I implore to you this last Sunday of 2019, Sir, ma'am, the world cries out, we would see Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, the one who works in all things, we ask for your grace. We have heard from your word about what you've done, what you've done through your servant Paul, and how the gospel that was received and given has been received and has been given time and time again, and that you have changed the world through it. Lord, we ask that your gospel would not be stagnant that it may not stop at this pulpit, that it may not stop at these pews, that it may not stop at South Holland, but may it go around the world. Lord, may the world see Jesus through our lives, in our goings and in our comings, in our getting up and in our laying down, in the way we work at school and in our businesses, even throughout our smiles throughout the day. Lord, we ask that the primacy of the gospel may be on full display. Not in our own strength, but by your grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.